This is Planted, a podcast that encourages us to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and established in the faith. The people of Israel and the slice of property on the Mediterranean Sea have been controversial for nearly all of history. What is the overarching lesson for us as we investigate God's inheritance in light of the gospel? Good day, everyone. This is Pastor Matt Grimm. I'm here once again with Thad Keenel in the Planted Podcast. How are you doing today, Thad? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good. Good get back together again. I'm. I've been uh, fighting a little bit of a cold, so I might sound a little nasally today. I apologize for that, but um, been looking forward to this. It's, it's good uh, after having a kind of few days down and out and, and trying to rest and recuperate to be able to get back in and do some some Bible study and have some good, interesting conversation with a friend. So looking forward to our conversation today and see where the Lord takes it. Yes, sir. Always looking forward to this. I, uh, I never know where you're going to take me, so... <laughs> <laughs> Let's see where you want to begin. We've been talking right. about Israel, so yeah. we've been we've been spending some time in the Old Testament. I mean, this is where right. the roots are, but Israel is, is mentioned just a ton in the New Testament right. as well. So maybe we want to start something like that. Well, yeah, actually, I was actually thinking today of Moses because we've been spending a lot of time with Moses here in this time at Sinai and um, him being kind of that intercessor who is uh, pleading on behalf of the nation after or the the people uh it's interesting i've been doing a little study on this real quick a little side note so I go back to my hopefully i can get back to my original thought <laughs> <laughs> is that um i was doing some reading today about how often israel is is not referred to as a nation it's referred to as a people right and the people of god the nation that term nation is often reserved for the nations surrounding them but israel is is most frequently called a people and and the Lord's people, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's just interesting to consider that um, as we consider uh, them as a people and why they're a people and and uh, what makes them a people is, is kind of what uh, as what makes them particularly the people of God uh, as we want to have that answer as we keep going on in this series. Right. And it can be a little bit confusing, right? Because sometimes Israel, um, like you said, means means right. people, and sometimes it means a subset of people, yeah. right? Because sometimes they'll talk about Israel and Judah, and that's two separate sets of Israelites. Right. right. You know, so yeah. context is important. and. Um, yeah. we'll do our best to thoroughly confuse everybody, but, exactly. but again, when we're looking at the context of things, that's, um, that's why it's so important to right. keep in, in mind right. who's being spoken of. Yeah. So back to Moses, back to my original thought is there Moses as the mediator who's interceding for the people who had fallen into sin, the sin of building the golden calf. So they had entered into covenant with God. They'd had this covenant ceremony with the elders up on the mountain in a meal, and Moses stays up for 40 days. And they were like, where's where's Moses? You know, we we want to have a feast for Yahweh, but we don't have our representative to speak for us. And so let's make one. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so they make the calf at, to have a feast for Yahweh, which is very interesting, but they break the commandment of, of not you know, making an, an, an idol or trying to make a representation of Yahweh. And Moses comes down uh, because the Lord tells him up on the mountain that he's upset with with the people because they're fallen into sin. And so Moses basically 
says to God, who wants to destroy them and start over with Moses, uh, he says, no, you know, this isn't going to be good for your reputation, God, for your glory, for your honor. Right. Right? What he says is, he says, because the Egyptians are going to talk about this, <laughs> That's right. right? That's they, right. They know the promise. Exactly. So, so Moses, it plays a very important role. And then we talked about him going outside the camp because of their sin meeting in the tent of meeting outside the camp. You know, people would stand at their tents. Moses would go in and Joshua with him and he would meet with God face to face. And then after that, he actually wants to God to show him his glory. And he goes into the cleft of the rock and God proclaims his name and all of that. Right. Right, And, And all through that, God is interceding for the people and he's basically saying, God, we're not going to go into the lane without you. Because Yahweh says, I'll send my angel, but I'm not going to go with you. If I go with you, I will destroy you. Destroy you. And so uh, so Moses is like, no, we, uh, we can't go without you. It, it, it would be useless. And so then uh, following that, we have the whole instructions for building of the tabernacle that's how God is going to be able to go with them is through that whole thing. And we, we, t- we briefly talked about mm-hmm. that. But, but again, Moses is playing this very important role. So as we think about Moses in the New Testament, there's a, he still has a place of honor and prominence, but yet in the book of Hebrews, he's used as a foil in some senses, or he's being, com- he's being compared to Jesus. And in order to show Jesus' superiority, Jesus as the the true Israelite who fulfills all things. And he's Hebrews 3, we see that Jesus is said to be greater than Moses. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, now is the people, here we're in the New Testament, these are the people of God who have faith in Jesus as the Messiah and who are uh, turning away from their Judaism in the sense of being bound to the law in that sense or wanting to turn back to, they're being actually tempted to turn back to it because they're being persecuted as Christians, mm. and and they're being encouraged. No, there's you don't want to go back. Jesus is superior, right? Uh, and so, in that, in this, in in chapter three, it says, "Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house, which we had seen." For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house indeed if we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope." So interestingly here, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, as compared to a servant. What's the difference that you think the author of Hebrews is highlighting here with with that? Well, I think that Moses being a a man called forth Mm -hmm. to just have a responsibility that God has called him to, is a, is certainly an aspect of honor um, that was given to Moses, but when we're dealing with the son, this is the heir of all things, mm-hmm. right? Who's being testified not only as as a mediator and and he himself is a servant because Jesus is a servant as yeah. well, but he also is the foundation of all these things, right? right? So I 
I guess I'm trying to see exactly where you where you're trying to go with that, but I'm I mean, it's almost like earlier on in Hebrews too, where it speaks of of Jesus being the very essence, you know, right of, yeah. of the Creator. Well, I, I'm just thinking of the we have here. He's making a distinction between a servant and a son, and so right. just in a household in general, a son has the inheritance of, of the household, where the servant is just a worker within the household, which is interesting. Because we would say, oh, you're trying to say that Moses doesn't inherit this, right? I mean, yeah, Moses was a servant, but if you relate it to the the house of God, we would say Moses is more than just a servant, but yet he's setting him up here. And I'm thinking in terms of just the function they play, right? That, yeah, it's not that, it's not that Moses wasn't, didn't have an inheritance as the leader of the the Hebrews right. as a Hebrew himself. Yeah. But but the role he was playing within that there's a greater house. That Moses wasn't the son of the house, uh like like Jesus was. Right. Well that's kind of where I was trying to go yeah. and I was thinking earlier on in Hebrews and it's it's kind of in verses two and three here. In the last days he's spoken to us um in his son whom he appointed heir of all things. That's what you right. were that's yeah. where you're going chapter with that. Chapter one. Right? Yeah. Through chapter one, through yeah. through whom he also made the worlds. Exactly. Right. So he's showing him his right. as creator, the radiance of his glory, representation right. of his nature. That's the essence that I was speaking of. So right. just just to kind of tie the well, my, yeah. my thought together. Right. Well and I think I think it's it, it's it's right. Um and, and so what I was wanting to get at here a little bit is is as we think about the sun there's times in the Old Testament that Israel is referred to as the sun collectively, right? And so we even talked a little bit about Israel kind of being like the corporate Adam, I think, last time a little bit, if I'm remembering your conversation correctly. Yeah. Is, is, so um, Moses, as a mediator, in some senses, he, he, he did represent, but he, he can't represent the entirety of the people in the same way that Jesus does. He served as their prophet and their the leader, you know, and he he served as in that function, but only Jesus can really be summed up as the one who who can fulfill what the corporate Israel didn't fulfill. Exactly. So right? Jesus is he himself is the true Israel. Like when um, the scripture says that out of Egypt I called my son, right. he's speaking of Israel, but he's also speaking of of Jesus. This is what you just were saying, right? He's the archetype. He is, and so here he's faithful, or God's house as a son, and God's house would be Israel in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and Israel, like I said, can be referred to as his son or his firstborn son, even because he's the one who he call he calls them out as his people. We may get to that. Today, if we get to Deuteronomy 32, <laughs> but the the point is, is that we see Jesus being tied here as the one who who can um, be the faithful one over God's house in that sense. Where Moses, he was faithful as a servant, but he 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 didn't play the role of the one who is going to fix it all. But in that context of of Moses, we he then begins to look at. Moses, he does reflect back on Moses' context as an example to the Hebrews of the New Testament time here in this letter as a warning, right? Right. And so, and and I wanted to look at that today because I think it's going to point us back to the Old Testament to help us continue to to see this striving of God in Israel 
right? Yeah, and help absolutely. us figure out who Israel is. So <laughs> it says, therefore, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Then he goes on to say, but exhort one another and call it today. And if you hear his voice, you know, don't harden your hearts, but be faithful. But very interesting, the summary there in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest you be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so it's like, okay, where did Israel have an unbelieving heart in the wilderness? So if we're in the wilderness, then we're no longer at Sinai here, because we've been in Sinai the last few episodes, talking about the creation and fall accounts of Exodus 19 and, and Exodus 32. And then even looking forward ahead, we looked into, you know, the building of the tabernacle and everything, God wanting to go. And they were going to leave Sinai and go into the wilderness. Right. And so now the next book, Leviticus, has more laws. And there's, you know, there's some stories in there, but they don't really leave Sinai until we get to the book of Numbers. And so it's in the num it's in the book of Numbers that we're in the wilderness. Okay. And so um do you want to do you want to jump there? Or do you want to revisit anything from? Exodus I, well, no, here? but you know when you said where does Israel demonstrate an unbelieving heart outside of Sinai? I actually was kind of going previous to that because in the desert they they weren't trusting. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> they, it, this is this is the this right. is the core. Well, of there Israel. was definitely grumbling and complaining. <laughs> right. So there there's a level of distrust, but they but they they were grumbling and complaining, but they were still kind of, in some senses. They weren't happy with their circumstances, but they were still right. But they, sure, after you know exactly you know what you're saying here, as we move forward now, yeah, right. we're gonna we're they're gonna have promises to be taking over the land and and these types of things, and um, they're yeah. gonna they're gonna demonstrate that there's a few leaders among them. There's always a few that tend to be faithful, just yeah. like Moses was. So if we go to the book of Numbers, chapter one, verse one says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt. They said, take a census. Okay. So then, and that's where we, they, the Hebrew Bible calls this book in the wilderness. Right. <laughs> we call it Numbers, which I wish we had, I wish we called it in the wilderness. But part of the reason it's called Numbers because there are all, all these census and there's all these lists and things. And so what they do is before they leave Sinai, they take a census. And they have instructions on how they're to arrange the camp, and then they have the the sons of Aaron and the duties of the Levites, and more laws about the redemption of the firstborns and duties of of different peoples. And it's like, wow, they. But there's a bunch of stuff here before they even leave. Um, yeah, right. It has to do, but a lot of it has to do with the camp, the roles and the functions they play within the camp as as God's people as they're going. Um, and even potentially, you know, as as they're going to be taking and possessing the land. But also with that is also the worship of God and how the Levites and everything and how they're supposed to maintain the tabernacle in the midst of all this. All that's caught up in here because God wants to go with the people and he wants his people to represent him um, and follow him as he goes. So we have 
chapters and chapters more about all of these things, even more instructions about celebrating the Passover and so forth. But it is not until chapter 10 that we get to them actually leaving. So, uh, again, there's not necessarily like a whole lot of time has passed here. There's just all these instructions and laws, the Torah instructions, instructions on what this is to be like. But in chapter 10, uh, they are to make trumpets to, to blow and signify when they're going to be summoning the congregation. Hey, we're, we're going to blow the trumpets because we're getting ready to leave. And, and, this will, this will be happening and all this. Right. And then in verse 11, it says, In the second year of the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And so, you know, again, they're to follow the pillar of, of cloud by day and, and fire by night, right? And that's when they watch for the when they're supposed to leave, when they're supposed to go, and so forth. And so, so then from there, we have, again, the tabernacle being taken down and all the rules of that. And, and so forth. But eventually, in verse 33, they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the Ark of the Covenant went before them three days' journey uh, to seek out uh, a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out the camp. And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it is rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Okay, so... So how many days journey here? Three days, right? They yes. journey for three days. It's time to rest again, okay? And then <laughs> after only three days, the people are complaining again. <laughs> now, now again, it's been more than three days uh, because, you know, they've been at Sinai for a while getting the laws. They they left, you know, and they've been eating, they've been eating manna they, they, for a while. They were there for a, basically a year, year because yeah. here we are in the second year, which just means yeah. it's not been two years, but it's in the second year, but in the second month and the first year in the first month was when yeah. they came out of Egypt, right? right? So right. they're there. And, and at the beginning of chapter 10, it's the second month on the first day. Right. And at, by the time you get to this point, it's only 20 days after getting all these instructions. And now they've, <laughs> now they're like, okay, right. we're all ready to ramp up and we're three days yeah. out. And here yeah. we are. And here we are. So they're complaining. And what are they complaining about? All we've had for a year is manna to eat. Okay. Um, <laughs> so they want some meat. <laughs> we, we're, we're ready for a barbecue. <laughs> God, you know. Oh, my um, goodness. And so Moses meets with the elders and all this kind of stuff. And God decides, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically the Lord says, all right. You want meat? I'm gonna give you some meat. <laughs> I'll give you some meat. <laughs> and so, in verse 31 of chapter 11, it says, "A wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on that side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground." So, we're talking more than the eye can see, right? They 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 have quail right. around a day's journey on every, basically circled all around them and. You know, up to there, I don't know how high that would be. <laughs> well, if it's two cubits, two cubits. Is, is going to be three is going to be three feet. Yeah, there you go. So up to you know up to their waist yeah. <laughs> in quail <laughs> for you know for a day's journey everywhere around them. <laughs> oh my goodness! And so the people rose up that day and night and next day, and they gathered the quail. And those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and a homer was about six bushels or two hundred and twenty liters. 
And they spread them out of themselves around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. And, and there the name of the place was called Kibroth Hatvah, uh, because there they buried people who had the craving. So now this is, now the Lord's angry with them, right? But this isn't their sin account. But we just see that three days into the journey, they're, all, they're back to their grumbling, just like when they left Egypt, right? And they wanted to turn back because they didn't know where they were going to get food. And so God provides manna and all that, all that kind of stuff. So we see this pattern within them mm-hmm. of, of the grumbling. Right. Um, and right after this, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. Miriam gets struck with the plague of, of leprosy and she has to sit outside the camp and all that stuff because those laws have been laid out earlier in numbers and everything. But it, it all goes on to show that this striving with God and with Israel is still there. Things aren't peachy um, by any means leading up to the story we want to get to. There's there's something in our human nature that if we are not keeping our eyes firmly fixed on the Lord, yeah. that we grow incontent yeah. with our circumstance, yeah. right? Because A, we're selfish. Yep. And, you know, I, I was no, I was being a little bit judgmental that they were three days and then grumbling, but I I, I can do that, you know, sometimes in, 20, oh. in, <laughs> in less time than that, you know, before oh, yeah. it's like, come on, oh, yeah. come on. I, I mean, I can relate too. I mean, I, I even think about well, like when our kids were little, you know, we decided to take a trip to Florida, you know, and, and it, it took us not quite two days. By the end of that time, I mean, you know, by that, that last, you know, 18 hours on the road or whatever, mm, you know, yeah. that 18th hour. I mean, it's not fun. I mean, you know, your rear end hurts. You're you're tired of looking at the same people the whole time. You're tired of being cooped up in the car. I mean, I'm sure, you know, for those who are, who are walking next to the to the sheep and, and you know, got the little carrying their kids and got the 12-year-old complaining next to them, you know, I'm I'm sure it wasn't that fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of a journey I mean, either, right? Right. But yeah. but at the same time, it's uh, you know it is it is a reflection of our spiritual condition that's going on here. So I just wanted to lay that out there because what we what we have next is in chapter thirteen, I think, is the incident that were is being referred to in Hebrews. Uh, is that thirteen and following here? It's actually 14 is when the rebel happens. But in 13, when when they camp from this place that they stopped and camped after three days, where he's having to deal with all this complaining and they, they just get done having this issue with the quail, um, he sends out spies to the land of Canaan. He sends out how many spies? Twelve, right? But basically there's a representative from each of the 12 tribes right. that are sent in to be spies. And it's their job. He says, go up, verse 17, go up into the Negev and go up to the hill country and see what the land is and where the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, where there are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. And where the cities and they dwell in and the camps or strong are camps or strongholds and where the land is rich or poor and where there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. Now the time was the seasons for the first ripe grapes. And so the spies go into the land and they um, they see what it's like. They carry back some grapes and pomegranates and figs. After four, They basically are gone 40 days too. So it's another 40-day 
uh, thing, just like Moses was up on the mount for 40 days, they're gone, they spent the land after 40 days, they come back. And so this time, you know, they come back and everybody's still waiting on them. <laughs> they're right. not wondering if they're dead or not. <laughs> but they come to Moses and Aaron and the congregation of the people of Israel, in verse 25, back in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, where they were at camp, and they brought back word to them with all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land in which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw descendants of Anak there. Okay, we'll have to talk about who that is. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. Okay, so these same peoples that we had the warning back in Exodus 35 about be sure when you go into the land, you don't follow after their gods. We're going to drive them out, right? Right. Um, so as they do this, in verse 30, it says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land. So they report to Moses and Aaron that it's good land. But because of their fear, they report to the people that it's a bad land, that they had a spy out saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And they, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. So, all right, we need to go back, and they're using some terms here that we should remember. Okay, so we have Anak, all right, uh, the descendants of Anak, and then, then there's other people groups. But the descendants of Anak, which we find out in verse 33, are the Nephilim, or they come from the Nephilim, okay, it says... And we seem like grasshoppers to them. So when do we first encounter the Nephilim? We first encounter them in Genesis chapter 6. Yes. Right? So we, we traced that back a few podcasts ago. That's one of the fall accounts. So we have the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, and their offspring are the Nephilim. Right. Okay? And the Nephilim are sometimes translated as giants. So these are giants. And so here it says they are of great height. Okay, so the descendants of Anak are large people. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. They're the giants in the land. Okay, and so not only are they maybe concerned about the fortified cities of the Amalekites, uh, uh, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and so forth, but it seems to be that one of the things they're most afraid of are the the Anakites, right, or these these descendants of the Nephilim, or they maybe they are even calling them the Nephilim themselves, right. are still in the land right. here. Right. So whatever your um, view is on who these giants are, whether they are, because our, our position um, right now is that we hold to, would, be, would match that of Michael Heiser's, which says that this is a supernatural union between um, the angelic realm and the sons right. of God, the sons of God, right? right, and of the women of men, right. right. And I just to stop right there, I would even say I'm open to the the fact that those supernatural beings and, and their offspring could even have, when they came and took on human form, could even have been made 
kings and rulers and things like that because of their greatness or beauty or their whatever. And especially even their offspring are these giants likely became warlords and leaders and stuff because of their strength and and so forth, right? So it's not necessarily just an either or. I think in some senses they can – while I believe they're these spiritual beings, that they can still function – they were functioning in the earthly realm, appearing as – Humans in some way. Are you talking about the the the, the Nephilim? Genesis six? Yeah, yeah. But are you talking about the Nephilim in the land now? But well, both. Yeah, I, I would well, say. Well, right. the, the the Nephilim are the offspring. offspring. That's are the okay. offspring. Right, right. But, yeah. it, but those offspring would have maintained that status within the human realm of of some kind of ruling or you know warlord exactly. capacity. Right. right? So, yeah. but then the other on the other side, there's a pretty strong split on on the viewpoint of that. Yeah. You know, with the reform, a lot of the reforms say that these are just two different people groups. One are the sons of Seth, and the other are the sons of of Cain, right? Right. Or, or of Cain, and and so we have like kind of the, those who honor God, the yeah. sons of God, and then the sons of men being kind of the 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 bad bloodline of right. of, of of human, right? But Regardless of your view on that, we're still coming into a point because don't forget back in Exodus chapter uh, 34 and 35, the Lord had just told him that he's going to send him into this land where these people exist right. and that he's going to lead them to victory over that. So they should be having this thought still in the back of their mind because it's, you know, we're still only a few months out from that, that promise coming to them. Yes. And we see again, these are big beings. They're they they are they're giant humans. Right, okay, right. and and so just think of David and Goliath. Goliath even down the road is 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 one of them still on the land. Okay, right. Uh, we can understand just like we can understand being tired of eating the same thing for a hundred uh, for a full year. We can understand being tired after a three day journey and getting whiny and complaining. We can understand being fearful of giants, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. I mean, if if uh, you know if if just if, imagine like you're what what you are is you're a high school football player and they're saying that you're going to go have to fight the the professional right you're going to have to go squad, play right? you're 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 running back for your high school football team and you're like you got to go you got to go uh, play the San Francisco Giants defense exactly you know? if like, you <laughs> if you want to know what I'm talking about everybody should remember who Earl Campbell was he was a running back for yeah. the Houston Oilers back in the day yeah. take a look with him standing in a, in a photo picture with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and um I think Wilt Chamberlain yeah. you you want to understand the difference, and these are just this is the difference between men, right? But there's a couple of feet of difference between yeah. these oh, yeah. humans, and so it's like you know, there's there's real fear when you're up against odds like that, yeah, right? right? And so they're thinking on the human side, and not, and they've forgotten what God has promised them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think I said the San Francisco Giants. That's a baseball team, by the way. It's the the Forty ers would be the football team, <laughs> but. <laughs> The uh, yeah so so but anyway the issue is faith here because I mean this is the same God who brought them out of the control of Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt right you know and so these these are the people who've experienced this is the same generation of people who've experienced that yeah this is we're talking less than this is thirteen months before this right exactly yeah right but they give in to this fear and so in verse in chapter 14 the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them would that we had died in Egypt 
or that we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become prey. Would it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Wow. So they're ready to abandon Yahweh, abandon Moses, who's been twice now we've seen intercede, you know, for the people. <laughs> um, they're, they're ready to go back. And then verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of, of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land was passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. The protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So here, Joshua and Caleb, the famous story of them standing up and saying, no, we can do this. And the people's response to them is to want to stone them. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a greater, a nation greater and mightier than they. So here God again, same thing as the golden calf incident. What's his response? I'm gonna dis I'm gonna get rid of them. And this time he says, I'm gonna disinherit them. He doesn't say I'm gonna de- destroy them. He's gonna strike them with pestilence, but it's gonna disinherit them. Mm-hmm. And then I'm gonna make a out of you, Moses, I'm gonna make a great nation greater than they. And then Moses does the same thing he does after the golden calf. He intercedes for them, and he, re- and he basically appeals again to the fame of, of Yahweh before the nations and says, no, you got to stick, stick with him. you got to redeem <laughs> uh-huh. these people. I'm, I'm, I'm debating in my head right now. I want to get to this whole idea of disinheritance. And, and, and so don't let me forget that, all right? That we're going to get back to that. But I want to finish the story here, okay. and then I want to get to this whole idea of inheritance and what's going on, okay? okay. So, um, but Moses intercedes for the people, and he he basically, not only does he remind him about his reputation, but he, he speaks back to him the words that were spoken to him in the cleft of the rock. And he says in verse 18, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but you'll by no means clear the guilty in visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Mm-hmm. So Mo- Moses is saying, no, you can punish them, but you've got to keep your covenant with them. You've got to keep your steadfast love. That, that, that has said that's that faithful love to them. And so the Lord in verse 20 says, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went." and all his descendants shall possess it. And then later we find out that Joshua gets included in that as right. well. Right? But, but basically, that's the judgment. So the people of that, that generation don't get to go into the land. It's only anyone 20 years or younger 
that gets to go into the land. And so the rest, all, and because of that, they all have to basically um, wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So after 13 months, right, they get to head out. They're going to get to go take the land. Now, all of a sudden, that 13 months is getting turned into 40 years. Right. Okay. So that's what Hebrews is referring to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the test of faith, they put, instead of trusting in the Lord, they put the Lord to the test and he judges them. Uh, in this way. So again, we what we see here is kind of this corporate fall uh, of Israel, and there's there's this Moses acting in this intercessory role. Um, and he he what he basically doing is speaking the name of God as the means for which to access that forgiveness, which I thought was very interesting. But I do want us to go back in as we look at who Israel is and what's going on here, why? Does God say that he will disinherit them? Why does he use that language of of disinheritance? Right. So are you asking me? Yeah. Well, God, early on, he calls a people unto himself in, in the terms of like Israel, mine elect. Yeah. You know, so he says he is taking a people unto himself out of the nations and um, he calls the, those people Israel. So for so for whatever reason, he he selects a people. Now you might be thinking that's a little bit biased to do that, but he's selecting a people to be a light unto the nations, and that goes all the way back to the promise to Abraham, right? Yes. So so it's kind of it kind of starts with that, but then um, he makes this statement perfectly clear directly in, in, in Deuteronomy thirty two. If you're going there. Yeah, I, I I do want to get there. I I'm trying to remember. I'm actually scanning really quickly Exodus 19. If that language is used somewhere in Exodus 19, um, when because we here it is. It's it's when he says, "If you indeed be, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession for all peoples, um, for all the earth is mine." And so that treasured possession language. Is 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 I think similar in, in terms of that um, right that is that absolutely. inheritance right. kind of thing. But I, I do want to take us to Exodus thirty two Deuteronomy. I mean, yeah, Deuteronomy thirty two because I we've we've mentioned it before in terms of of the people of Israel as this. I, I just want to take some time to look at it more closely. If we look ahead to Deuteronomy thirty two, so basically. After forty years of wandering in the desert, okay, and and some other there's some some more trials and things that happen within there. We have the whole incident with uh, water from the rock, and then uh, and then the other incident where Moses does it wrongly and it keeps him from going into the promised land, right? And then we have the whole issue of the the plague of the snakes, and then Moses lifting up the snake, which is a whole other really cool story about <laughs> sure that is, looks yeah. forward to Christ, right. you know. So there's there's more cool things happening in numbers besides just some further laws and, and more lists of people because uh, but because what ends up happening at the end of numbers another census is taken in numbers why why is there another census taken at the end of numbers well after the forty years of wandering they need to take another census to enter the land to see who who's the people so the reason they took a census at the beginning of numbers because they were going into the land but. They don't get to go. They have to wander for 40 years, and that generation has to die off, and now they're getting to go again, and they have to take another census. Okay? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, so, um, but 
so we have that happen, and then and then we have the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, what we have is is we have some people call it like the second law. Yeah, right. You know, but in some senses, it's more than just the second law. It's actually in in another way. I think that's interesting to put it is it's actually the final giving of the law before they enter the land. And so it's not just he has to repeat himself, but it's it's more like okay. We're establishing this again. It's kind of a covenant renewal in some senses, and in part of that renewal of making that promise again for the end of the land is to is to give the law again. Mm-hmm. And in this sense, it's given with living in the land uh, in mind. Okay, and so um, so that's what's happening here. And in the midst of that, Moses basically has some harsh words as well for Israel, in the sense of saying that you know. You're not going to be able to really keep this covenant, <laughs> right? But uh, but but it's all read to them and so forth. And end of verse, end of chapter thirty-one. Joshua's commend, uh, commissioned to lead Israel, and then so basically we have this kind of transfer of command from think from Moses, who can't enter the land, to Joshua, and and so uh, they're getting ready to go off. But Moses kind of had his final words, and before he gets into some of those. Um, before his death, right before his death, he has this song they call the Song of Moses, one of the songs of Moses, and then he has another, let's suppose, are kind of his blessings upon Israel. But in this in this song, he's kind of recounting a little bit of that history uh, of, of things with them. Right. And, and so here we are at the end of the five books of the, the Torah, right? Which right. Is the, and in Deuteronomy, which is the last book, we have a total of 34 chapters. And so yeah. here we are on 32. So just so you know where we're closing off here is, is Moses is nearing the right. end of his life, Moses, just, be, just before they enter into the promised right, land. Right, And so they they didn't get to enter the rest for 40 years, but now they're getting they're getting ready to. Moses is at the end of his life, and so he, he starts speaking to them uh, about – he spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly. So it's kind of his – it's his farewell speech. He gives praise to God, and then he says in verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he, the character of God. Verse 5, They have dealt corruptly with him. They They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. Okay, I think we can see that that could easily be talking about the people of Israel as we've seen them grumbling and being disobedient and so forth. Mm-hmm. Could it also be all of creation to some degree uh, before the flood? <laughs> you know, we could say, um, yeah, it's true of both uh, there. But uh, but he's addressing Israel here, right? He is. They are because they have a certain expectation on how they're to behave. Yeah. Right, exactly. and, and so they were given this instruction, and they're not doing that. Right. Therefore, this is this is that judgment, so to speak, against them. The rest yeah. of the world that doesn't follow the true God, well, that's their expected behavior. <laughs> and so this is why they're being told this, yeah. right? So verse 6, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Okay, we've seen that. We just reviewed a little bit in Exodus 19 in terms of he's taken them as his treasure possession. And he said, you know, that's where he said, will you be my people? And yes, we will. I'll be your God and and so forth. So we have that account there. He's established them. And then he reflects back beyond that. And he says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. 
Yeah. I want to go back to verse six just for one okay. second, because my translation, which I'm reading from is the Legacy Standard Bible or the NASB uh, type uh, translation. In um, part 6b there, it says, is he not your father who has bought you? And um, so I looked at the the Hebrew real quick, um, and it, it talks about it being a possession and acquire and, and, to acquire and, and acquire and yeah. stuff like that. So similar, but you know, I, I I was immediately going back to how when you say to buy, yeah, um, is kind of a redemption thing. So he bought he re- them out of Egypt. Exactly, it was a yeah. redemption thing. But what was your what was your word again? Created you. Yeah. So I didn't know. Okay. But that create. But how did that creation creation? It wasn't a creation out of nothing. No. Right, like like the at at the beginning of the world, right? This is a this is a creation out of choosing them and redeeming yeah, them. Yeah, this is the yeah. election process of Abraham yeah. and then and then pulling them together, people unto right. himself to and, and serve. He establishes them as officially as his people there in Exodus nineteen before Sinai, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so verse seven, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Now the days of old that is often thought of in terms of reflecting back to times before Abraham, before the patriarchs, okay? And and even the language of consider the year of many generations, that phrase, these are the generations of, are often clues that we're moving on in the story in the book of Genesis, right? These are the generations of so-and-so, and then we have a little story, and then and these are the generations of so-and-so. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, so now, okay, so our mind should be going back to Genesis, the days of old, we're talking here probably before Abraham. And now he says, ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. So this has been oral tradition that's been passed down to them. Okay. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. Oh, I've heard that story before. Oh, yeah. I right? Too, yeah. That's the Tower of Babel. Right. Okay. So the Most High gave the nations What? Their inheritance. Inheritance. Mm. Okay, so we have inheritance language here. He divided mankind. We know that's Babel. So when he divided mankind, the nations were given as an inheritance. To who? He says, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, some of your translations might have sons of Israel there. Mm. So there's a textual variants here. We don't get many of those in the scriptures, but here we have one. Um, And that is, why is it the sons of Israel in some translations, where the Masoretic text has the sons of Israel, Beneha, yeah, Israel, okay? Mm -hmm. The Masoretic text is about a thousand years BC in terms of the earliest known documents that we have of it. it, 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 now we, but we do have other documents that precede that, right? And some of these were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of them were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other places, right? right? And those documents have Beneha Elohim, the sons of God. Right. My translation says the sons of Israel, but there's a note that's yep. that's right on it that says um, or angels of God or the, the sons of God, Dead Sea Scrolls. So, yes. it, so it's referring back as an earlier translation. Right. So the debate scholars have is what's the true thing here? Um, many trusted evangelical scholars, Heiser and, and Tim Mackey and, and others of, of like modern day would, would say they would trust the older 
scrolls that they found, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, that say that it's the sons of God. The mm-hmm. Beneha Elohim is, is probably the original text. And they and they have a plausible ex- explanation for why the Masoretes may have made the change. And 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 have you heard that before? I haven't. Okay. My understanding is is that the reason the Masoretes might choose to do this is that they would believe that the sons of God are Israel. Sure. And so they just did an inter- basically did an interpretive, made it more clear to their people to say the sons we're the sons of God, and so. Um, it should be the sons of Israel, right? And, and we're the ones who are to have rule over the nations anyway, right? So let, let's have it be us. But right. there is a. But I think that it seems to make more sense. Verse well, I think verse nine should help us with this, correct? Because verse nine says, "But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage, or you could even say their inheritance." Right. Mm-hmm. So who? If the nations are given over to the sons of God, whoever they may be, but Jacob and his portion, the Lord's portion is Jacob and his his allotted heritage. So there's one people that becomes the Lord's inheritance, right? And that is Jacob and his sons, and that that whole family, which God said that's what He would do, and that's what the whole story of the Old Testament's about <laughs> is Him doing this, <laughs> exactly. right? And the whole promise to Abraham makes sense that I'm taking you and it's out of you that I'm going to bless the nations. Right. So let's just say that if we have a um, a hard time um, accepting that they're talking about the sons of God or angels right. and setting the boundaries of the people, um, we still have the correct vision of this as God takes Israel into the nations that are serving these false gods, right? So all these right. other nations around them have their false gods, and so that that still exists as a reality, regardless of your interpretation of this. Yes, um, for the most part, and that's what we're trying to keep in mind because as God is sending the people into this land, they're to do one thing, right? They're to remove the idols, right, and they're to set up only worship unto the true God Yahweh, who's right. called this people. To himself, his inheritance. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, but but I, and so I agree with you. I think either way, it's clear that Israel is Yahweh's inheritance. Yeah. Yahweh that He's taken them for Himself. Now the question is: in the taking of Him for Himself, has He then given all the other nations to Israel? Are is Israel is are all the other nations Israel's inheritance? Basically, it would be if you believe this is the sons of Israel, then that's the position you're taking, right? That the nations haven't been allotted to Israel, right? Right, because Israel's been allotted to God. Okay? Exactly. Well, I, that, I mean, that would be if you if you think that's what if you think it should be sons of Israel. Basically, that what you're saying is that, or even if sons of God means sons of Israel, you're basically having to take the position that then Israel at this time of Babel. Okay, when God chose them for himself and promised Abraham that you're going to be a blessing in the nations, at the same time, he also gave those nations to Israel. Mm-hmm. If, if he gave the nations their inheritance, he divided them up, he fixed the border of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. It seems like that's what it would, it would be. Yeah. Right? And that's where I look at the story, I look at my Old Testament and I don't see that. Now, while they are promised to have that in, in the sense of being a blessing, they never rule over the nations. They never, that never happened. In fact, 
in the time when they're getting ready to go into the land, they're afraid of the nation. I mean, they they recognize the of the nations and these other gods, and they're so they don't they're not viewing this the way Moses would be telling them this in this moment, mm-hmm. even as they're the recipients of this. Right. If they're listening to this and they're there, should they be saying, "Oh, right"? But if it is that the, the these other nations are been give their inheritance are these other gods, and if we Think about those gods as small g gods, spiritual beings, right? Who have who are in rebellion against God, just like um, the, the the nations were in rebellion with God at Babel. Right. It just makes sense to me logically that you would have that juxtaposition between Yahweh, the true God, taking the the people of God of of Jacob and his inheritance. For himself, and the other nations are abandoned to these other gods. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. It's so, so. Yeah. Absolutely. So. So with that, we see if that's the state of things before they enter the land, and that was the state of things as they were even in Egypt. Right. It was. Um, that was the state of things when when Abraham's called out of the land, and we traced him and and. Isaac and Jacob, as they're traveling around in there, they're in the land with these other peoples who are serving other gods. And they're constantly being warned not to follow after mm-hmm. those gods, yep. right? And in some senses, it makes more sense of all the warnings of don't follow after their gods if the nations are given over to those gods. Exactly. Right. Yep. And so I think seeing the narrative of the Old Testament in that light and seeing the the battle at hand for Israel is one of faithfulness. Their ultimate battle is to be faithful to Yahweh. And if they're faithful to Yahweh, the battle will be theirs. It will be won. But the temptation is to either fear or give in to or worship those other gods, right? Because thinking that that's going to be the path to victory or prosperity or rest, when actually the only one is to stay faithful to, to Yahweh, who right. is the God of, of all gods. Right? right. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So pastor, here we are. Um, we're talking about this in Deuteronomy 32. Um, the, the nations uh, belong, you know, their, their inheritance is divided in, in the lands or to these sons of God, right? They, this yep. angelic host, so to right. speak, but Yahweh himself has taken Israel um, as his own allotment, right? Yes. That's the inheritance. But later on, it's it's going to speak more to this that kind of supports what we've been talking about just now, right? So is that something that we want to maybe do next time? Or? Yeah, I think I think we want to wrap up today and, and get to that next time, especially as it relates to the land. Because one of the reasons we're entering into this whole discussion to begin with is we're asking who is Israel, according to scriptures, and and as in light of who is it today, and how important is the land and and God's relationship to the people in the land, and what's the whole struggle with that? Is is the is the issue the land itself, or is it the issue the worship that happens in the land, right? And the relationship of the people to God in the possession of the land that would then affect its relationship to the nations around it. Right. And this is going to transition as we get into the New Testament. I mean, if you're struggling right now, like, I don't want to talk about the supernatural. I just want to talk about these people, Israel, and 
and these other nations. That's what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about supernatural. I don't want to talk about angels. Well, you still have to reconcile in the New Testament the whole demonic realm that Jesus deals with. Right. I mean, this is all part of the gospel message. Right. And then it's um, it's brought back up again in, in Paul saying that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with these powers and principalities. Exactly. And so it, it is relevant to our entire is, knowledge and, it, it and belief system. It is because system. the New Testament doesn't let us escape from that. Right. Uh, and with that too, and even if we even if we put it in the hands of the nations and in the New Testament time that Jesus is there, and while there is a temple, and while we have the city of Jerusalem, they're still under the thumb of Rome. And the that fact is means that there is a recognition that there's something spiritually wrong. Mm-hmm. Things aren't all right in Israel, even though they have a temple, and even though they're making sacrifices and stuff. There. Um, there's an issue there right. because Rome Caesar is still in some senses coming down and saying, I'm the Lord here. I'm your Lord, not, right. not whoever else right. I'm letting you worship and you can call Yahweh all that stuff. But basically you've got to obey me. Um, and so that, that is a real spiritual unrest that is in the, the, the people. And so we have a whole story of how we even get there because we have, we have a question, did they ever even fully have possession of the land at any point? When did Israel really start functioning as a nation? Yeah. Um, because if, if I just quickly, uh, we'll take a little extra time here, look at the timeline of things. You know, so they go in, they possess the land. It, it, at the end of Joshua, he kind of indicates like, okay, we've done it. But we know when we get into the ju- uh, judges, um uh, that things aren't going all well. Right. So, um, so, though, and, so and, just to give you a quick on, on the timeline. So Abraham, yeah. um, I'm, I'm going to speak in round numbers because okay. it's easier, about 2000 BC. Yeah. Moses, about 1500 BC. Right. Right. And so we have all of that time period. Joshua goes into land. Um, King David, about 1000 BC. So there's segments of 500 years or so before right. we get the, before King David comes in, we have- We have Saul. We have Saul, right? right. So, so let's say- even, we can we we can pretty much say that under David we, they're all unified, but there we can even make some arguments that under Saul, even though there's still some bad things going, there's some sense of a unified thing. But before before Saul and a king, that we have these twelve tribes, and they kind of relate to each other, but they don't always. They're not always fighting together or getting along. They're not really acting as a unified nation, really, and it really comes. Starts with Saul, but really it's under David that we have a unified nation, about 1,000 B.C. Right. right. And this is interesting. So we have unified nation under David, and by the end of David's reign, there are no more Nephilim in the land. Yeah. Which is interesting because what? who are the Nephilim? They're the, they're the leftover hybrids from, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And so no more Nephilim. So the question is, what happens to the disembodied spirits of possessors of the land, right? Um well, yeah, that that'll come up in the New Testament. I know, but it's irrelevant, right? right? Well, so, it, yeah. so, so, but King David does have this United Kingdom. Okay, yeah. So, I, I want to get to the United Kingdom. So, there's a United Kingdom around a thousand BC. Mm-hmm. How long does that United Kingdom last? About four minutes, right? <laughs> About Through, eighty years, right? So, you got Kim, you got King Solomon who builds a temple, right? Then the very next son, yeah, it divides, right? So, basically, if we if Rehoboam? we want to be re- is that Rehoboam? We, yeah, it, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, yeah. so. We, if you want to be generous and say that they were unified under Saul, 
then we have 120 years of unity. Mm-hmm. At best, yeah. A thousand years before Christ. And then after that, they're divided. And then by 712 BC, the northern 10 tribes are taken away. Right. So that's, that's 2,700 years ago. Mm-hmm. was the last time all 12 tribes were even dwelling in the land. And it was some 200 years before that that they were unified. Right. Right? And so a unified 12-tribe nation of Israel only existed for a little over 100 years, or maybe we could say a little over 80 years. Right. Okay. And... Then a couple hundred years after that. A couple hundred yeah, years after that, then the southern tribes are taken away. And then when they do come back into the land under the second temple period, under Ezra and Nehemiah, and there's rebuilding, they're still always under the thumb of someone else, mm-hmm. except for a brief time under the Maccabean Revolt. Which, But even in that time, they never really established a real unif- any kind of unified rule. They don't. And during the Maccabean um, time when they regained the temple, the Book of Maccabees – one reason that I would say that it's not attested to be scripture is because there was no prophet in the land at the time. Yeah. They attested that. They didn't know what to do with the altar. Do we do a new altar? Do we <laughs> clean this one up? But they didn't know because there was no prophet right. in the land. So right. God wasn't speaking. So that's, right. you know, it's a historical book. We think uh, the, right. the first book of Maccabees. Right. But yeah, and this is a couple hundred years before Christ, right? right? And, right. and then we see, you know, yeah. all of uh, Rome so, starting to grow. Right. And then after that... um we have the Messiah come, we, in our view, the Messiah comes, mm-hmm. okay? And when he comes, he establishes his kingdom not in the way that's expected, right? But he actually gives up his life. He overcomes sin, death, and evil through his death and resurrection, and he establishes a people for himself. And he doesn't tell his people to go take the land. He, he says, actually, disperse into all the nations and proclaim the gospel, right? right? And so, And that's what's been happening since. Mm-hmm. I bring up and tell all this history a little bit because I just want to real quickly, given current events, and we're recording this at a time when you know Israel is still a mess, you know, and and fighting a war with Hamas, and 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 I understand from a current political geopolitical standpoint, they're a sovereign nation who have the rights to defend themselves and all those kind of things. I'm not talking political in that sense, however. There's often wanting to give biblical justification for the reestablishment of Israel and the nation in that land, right, as something that God wants to see happen. We'll talk about that, you know, potentially later in episodes. But I just quickly, as we reviewed that history, want to have you think about this. The question is, is what's the, what's the most faithful witness to the gospel in the scriptures, what should the church be right. report? What should the church be telling? What should the church be purporting? Right? And is is what's being done a true witness to the Messiah? That's ultimately what we were going to get to. But I especially want to think about it in terms of in the terms of the ancient Near East history and now even the modern Near East mindset that is um how how do you proclaim the gospel in that context? Because we need to be able to proclaim it in our context, but we also want it proclaimed everywhere. So what's what's the gospel message? Do we want Hamas's hearts changed? Do we want them to hear and and to turn away from Allah and come to Jesus? Well, this to me is a, a very strong key element of 
how faithful Christians are to interpret Scripture and to share the testimony of their faith the way that Christ has sent us forth in the commission, right? Yeah. Um, the church militant, when we when we think of that militant, uh-oh, you know, we're, yeah. we're going to go to war. But that is a spiritual battle, hard stop. Yeah. That's what that is, right? The gates of Hades shall not prevail. Right. Is nothing but a spiritual battle that the gospel will succeed. The gospel goes forth, conquering and to conquering according to the power of Jesus Christ. So for Christians who are making a strong sentiment, um, and perhaps in a in a orthodox and biblically honoring sense for the for, of interpretation that the that Israel will inherit the land are going at it in a physical military sense, or they're they're yeah. thinking that this is this is okay, this is this is all right, this is how we're going to maybe go about this. God's going to accomplish His purpose this time in a, in a, in a physical right. aspect when the Lord has not spoken to go into the land and take it over again. Yeah. This and that, that's where, that's where we went ahead right. eventually. But I, I just thought as we were retracing the history, you keep backing me up. <laughs> well, well yeah, but I mean, as we were, as we were doing that yeah, timeline, right. I think it's important to see that, you know, we're not the only ones who know that timeline. There are people who are not of necessarily the scriptures or especially the new Testament scriptures who hold to that timeline. Mm hmm. You know, and so it's. I think that as we want to reach the entire world, and as we even want to reach the people who are so upset with Western the Western world right now, right? Um, and I think, I, in some senses, I think I, I understand their justification. Now, I don't think that I don't think that the answers of is, is to go kill, murder, and destroy. You know. For that, but I can see, and I even I would say even for their Palestinian Christians in the land, right? Who have who have some of those or have the same upsetness, right? Not just Palestinian Muslims who are in the mm -hmm. land, right? Because they wouldn't hold to the fact that the the land, you know, is still supposed to give, you know, come to the, the nation of Israel, which which even the question as we've looked at this history who is the nation of <laughs> right yeah well it's a, it's a mighty so, big topic so you know we're going to spend some more time yeah. on it but uh, a little bit of a tangent there at the end but i i think it's but it's an interesting question to ask and to sometimes step out of our american viewpoint and say how does how is the rest of the world or even that particular part of the world looking at this history and and does the gospel have an answer to it i believe it does I believe that I believe that Jesus as the reigning Messiah right now has an answer to this. Right. Um uh and I don't I I think you've figured out our bit by now. I don't believe the answer is the reestablishment of of a geopolitical nation. The answer is the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection, the establishment of a people that that recognize him as Messiah. Right. You know. And so we'll Hopefully stick. get there, stick with us, and we'll we'll lay that out from a scriptural biblical standpoint. Wow. Hang on, we're going for a ride. <laughs> we'll see you next time. It's not geopolitical, it's geospiritual. Stick with us as Jesus accomplishes the gathering of his true people of Israel.
Planet is a Cornerstone EPC production, connecting to God, one another, and the world through the love of Jesus. More information can be found at cornerstonebrighton.com.